Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through to 3. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. We are about to soon observe the Lord's Supper and to remember our Saviour's death. And it is very appropriate that in our study of this exhortation of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews, we have come to this portion of it where Paul in actual fact speaks of the sufferings of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. And the words that I would highlight form our three heads this morning. They are words that describe his sufferings and the intensity of them. You have that word in verse 2, the cross. He endured the cross. And then you have that word also there, the shame. Despising the shame. And then in verse 3, such contradiction of sinners. The abuse. The cross. The shame. The abuse. These three phrases express the intense agony and sufferings of our dear Lord. Now Paul is not speaking about the atonement aspect of the cross. That's always fundamental with him of course. It's not just that Christ suffered. He suffered for our sins. He died for us. He died for our sins and in order to remove them. That is always a fundamental. And I don't have to emphasize that to you this morning. Especially as we come to the Lord's table. We know that. And it's not Paul's emphasis here in Hebrews chapter 12. Paul's main emphasis is endurance. Perseverance. Keeping on. No matter how difficult. That's what he is exhorting us about here. Not only here, but the whole epistle really is about that. Christians must not give up the pilgrimage. We are not of them who go back. Who go off the track. But we are to be of those who go on. Who endure and do not abandon the race. And so the important word is patience. Let us run with patience, that is with endurance, perseverance, the race that is set before us. Now endurance, it implies opposition. It implies difficulty in the way. It implies trials and contrary forces. It implies suffering. Something in a vacuum, you see, doesn't need endurance. A flower could survive in the the vacuum. There's no no forces against it. But where there's 
opposition, where there's a storm, where there's fire, where there are trials, and it's going to get worn down. You need endurance. You don't get worn down if it's all a bed of roses and everything's fine. But the Christian life is not like that. And so this is about endurance. The Christian, you see, is not in a vacuum. He's in a wind and pressure tunnel that tests him, that tries his faith and wears him down. Endurance is the thing that is needed. This word endurance implies suffering, hardship. The contexts in which it occurs are two in the Bible. One is a military context that the soldier has to endure. The soldier is facing the warfare. The soldier is facing the enemy. He has to persevere. He has to endure. Endure hardness. As a good soldier of Jesus Christ, the Christian is, is a soldier and he has to endure against the hardship. The Christian life, as I said, is not a bed of roses, congregation. It's difficult. It's hard. When you become a Christian, it's not an easier life, you know. And to tell sinners that is wrong. It's, you, you don't say it's a better, it's an easier life. Yes, it may be a better life in many respects, but it's not an easier life. It's easier to be on the broad road and go to destruction. That's the easier life. No, the Christian is a difficult life. And you must never say in evangelism, oh, life's tough for you, sinner. Become a Christian and it won't be like that anymore. That's the lie. W.P. Nicholson said, Satan works hard to stop people being converted. But when they are converted, he doesn't leave them. He works just as hard to divert them and to get them off the path. You see, Satan doesn't worry about the doctrine of election. He doesn't care what Christians say. As far as he's concerned, every Christian's a hypocrite. As far as he's concerned, every Christian, if you try him hard enough, if you blow the forces against him strong enough, he'll be off the path. He thought that of Job. He thought Job's a hypocrite. Take away all he has. Take away all his money. Take away all that he owns. Take away all his property. We'll see what he's like then, God. He thought he wasn't real. He thought he wasn't genuine. He thought he could blow him off the track if he just took certain things away out of his life and made him suffer. That's how the devil thinks. So when you become a Christian, while he has been opposing you as an unconverted person, he opposes you even more as a converted person. So it's tougher. The battle's greater. And so he attacks God's people. If he couldn't keep them off the path, he attacks them to leave it completely in, in the trials and storms that he sends. So it's a military setting. It can also be used in an athletic setting. Racing, running. And that's part of the context here. Let us run the race that is set before us. And the athletic doesn't just run. He agonizes. He disciplines himself. He trains. He works hard. He sacrifices this and that and the other. He lays things aside. He's completely disciplined. And the word for race, that's the word that we get our word agony from. It's an agonizing thing. It's a painful thing. It's a course of suffering and hardship. And so we have to endure as a soldier, as a runner. Endurance is the key word. The pilgrims of faith are going to suffer. We saw that at the end of chapter 11, kind of things that they suffer. The dens and the mountains and the caves they have to wander about. They have to face the stoning, the tempting, the sword, 
They have to be mocked and scourged, imprisonment and chains and all of this and that. Suffering, opposition, and you need endurance. And what Paul focuses on now, he's looked at the cloud of witnesses. He's looked at all these pilgrims in the Old Testament. And what he does now is he looks at the chief pilgrim, looking on to Jesus, the chief pilgrim. And he suffered. He had to endure. He had to have perseverance. He had to have patience. And so we have this word in verse 2, looking on to Jesus, endured the cross. That's the verbal form of patience in verse 1 to 9. Endured the cross. And then in verse 3, endured contradiction of sinners. So he had endurance. And Paul brings in the sufferings to show the blast that was against him that he had to endure. And so we're not thinking so much about the endurance of Christ as the blast, his sufferings, what he had to endure. We must always appreciate it, what it cost our Lord to take away our sins and to stand in that blast tunnel for us, to save us and to deliver us. And we have to remember that these sufferings were voluntary. He, he could have been in heaven. He didn't have to take humanity. He didn't have to enter into the trial and the suffering. He could have remained up there, but, but we wouldn't be saved. He wouldn't find the sheep that were lost. No, he voluntarily took his humanity and all that came with it, the cross, he took it all in his love for us. So they're voluntary and they're substitutionary and he chose them. We've no choice about these things. We, we have to face the blast. But he chose it. He chose this way that he might find the sheep that were lost. He had something before him that caused him to endure it. And that was us. The joy that was set before him. What joy is that? The joy of having you around his table. That's what he had before him. The joy of you sitting around here and remembering his death and fellowshipping with him. The joy of him forgiving your sins and receiving you into the fellowship. For that joy. The joy of the Lord's table. The joy of the fellowship eternal in the new heavens and the new earth with his people for that hope before him, he endured the cross for us. And I want to think about those sufferings. Now, I can only touch on them. I can only give you a few wee pictures. We cannot know. We cannot tell what pains he had to bear. But we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. The cross, that's the first word. He endured the cross, the cross. Now, literally speaking, the cross is the instrument of crucifixion. The wood of the cross, the timber of the cross, the thing on which impalement takes place. He had the cross in his life. He endured the cross, and he endured it in two respects. First of all, he carried that cross. He endured the weight of it and secondly, he was impaled on it. He endured the death of it. So there are two, two distinct things there. The weight of it, the carrying of it, and then the impalement itself upon it. He endured both of those. First of all, the carrying of the cross, 
Now the Lord carried the cross in two respects. First of all, he carried it figuratively. That is, he carried it all his life. All his life. And he carried it literally. And that was on the path to Calvary when the actual physical tool, the physical instrument, was placed upon his back and he carried it physically. But all his life, he carried the weight of it, figuratively speaking, the weight of it on his humanity all his life. All his life. It was an awful weight. You must remember that Christ endured the cross all his life long. You see, we don't know our crosses in life. They come, suddenly appear, we have to take it up. We hardly get any warning about the man. He knew all his life. It was on its way. He carried it every day. The Lord Jesus came into the world for the cross. He came to carry the cross. His life was about that. He was born with its shadow looming over him. As sure as the shepherds loomed over him in the manger. And the wise men came and loomed over him in the house. So even before them that cross. That cross loomed over him. Even as that shroud wrapped around him. It enclosed him. It enfolded him. He is born for death. He is born for the suffering of the cross. And he knew that future agony. Now it's good that we don't know our future agony congregation. Because you know if we know our future agony. You know what? You manipulate things to avoid it. Christ knew. But he didn't manipulate things to avoid it. No. He bore it. He knew his mission to atone for our sins. He knew it as he himself said. Thus it is written. And it behoves Christ to suffer. It behoves Christ to suffer. He knew Isaiah 53. As he knew all the Old Testament. He knew through the word of God. Revealing to him. As one who had the messianic consciousness. That he has to suffer. He sung all of those psalms. And with his messianic consciousness, he knew what all those psalms were about. All of those lamentation psalms, they are him in his carrying and bearing the cross for us. How can the scripture be fulfilled? Thus it is written, and thus Christ must suffer. He set his face as a flint. He set that face with endurance to go toward Jerusalem. Because he knew what was before him. He knew what lay in the way. He even began to tell his disciples. Though he left it late. Because he did not wish to discourage them. But coming near to the end of his time with them. He began to share this. He began to teach them. The son of man must suffer. Must suffer many things. And be rejected of the elders. And be Given over to the Gentiles and be killed and crucified. Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered up to be crucified. He carried the cross even before it was cut down and made into the tomb of impairment. They didn't want to know this, of course. The disciples, oh, be that far from me. We'll manipulate things, we'll avoid the cross, we'll get by that. No, no, no manipulation. 
endure the cross. Okay. This, of course, literally was fulfilled too when he carried the cross. As John tells us, he bearing his cross went forth onto the place of the skull. He endured this as much as his humanity was physically able. But we know that it wasn't able. And when he was his humanity, broken as it was by the scourging and by other things, he fell under the weight of the cross and Simon had to physically take it. But as far as he physically, humanly speaking, could endure it, he did endure it. But even physically, you see, physically we can only endure so much. And also with Jesus, physically he can only endure so much. And he falls under the weight of the cross. But his soul, his mind, his heart, his spirit endured on. Even when physically he could not be endured. And then secondly he endured the impalement upon the cross. Angels stood ready to deliver him. I don't know that angels were aware of all that was taking place. But they certainly knew the son of man as being crucified. And they must have stood aghast and wanting to deliver him. Wanting to intervene. Even as they strengthened him in Gethsemane, his, his physical humanity, they came and strengthened him. And so at the cross, no doubt their desires to get in there and to physically deliver him. But they're held back. Because he must endure the impalement. The death, even the death of the cross, they brought him to the place which is called Calvary and there they crucified him. They impaled him on the tree. We preach Christ impaled. We preach Christ crucified. He not only bore the cross, he was nailed to the cross. So let us never say this word crucified thoughtlessly. Let us never say the cross thoughtlessly. Crucifixion was one of the most horrible deaths, the most horribly slow and excruciating, painful forms of execution that man has ever invented. It was designed to be that. Death was not to be quick. Sword, strangulation, beheading, drowning, too quick for the Romans to give to the malefactors against the empire. For Rome to deal with its rebels, they invented or reinvented and rediscovered the execution of impalement. And they were the professionals in the act. And into their hands Jesus went. Now think of all the deaths that you would like. And there's none of them that you would like. But I tell you this, if you go down them in preferential order, all was crucifixion 
our similar impalement is at the end. It's the last day that men choose. Yet Christ endured the cross. And he didn't change it for any other. And it's by that death that atonement is made. Paul is here saying, pain. Agony. Pain without relief. Pain intensifying as the end draws on. Multiplying as the minutes and hours pass. Till the last breath alone ends it. And really, as I say, we have no idea what pain he had to bear. And we have to pull a veil over it. But it was great. The cross, the cross. But then secondly, we must move on here. The shame, he despised the shame and he endured the shame by despising it. The only way that he could endure it was to despise it. He did so. He disdained it. Even as he disliked it. He did dislike it. Nobody loves sufferings. No true man loves sufferings. No true man loves the shame and the feelings of shame that come. But it didn't make him run away either. It didn't push him off the course. It didn't divert him. He despised the shame, but he did not run away from it. You know, congregation, Sometimes shame is worse than pain. Shame is the greatest pain, really. If anybody has ever felt the feeling of shame, or seen people who have suffered shame, and wilted under it, and it's destroyed them and ruined them, it's the greatest pain to bear. Some people have chosen death rather than shame. And some people through shame have even ended their lives because they couldn't face it. Jesus had this to face. Now we know that he suffered shame. Not for his own sins, of course, he never had any sin. Of that we are assured. But he had his people's sins Do you not think he felt ashamed in union to his people? As he bore their sins and all those horrible sins and their shame. He bore their sin, but he also bore their shame. Now, none of us can comprehend this aspect of the sufferings of Christ, but it's a very important part of the atonement as he makes propitiation for us. He was made sin for us. Who can explain that? And all the feelings that come with that. And one of them is the sense of shame. With our sins he could not lift up his head. And it's not just about the pain. It's about the shame of our sins. Our sins. As we know are more than the hairs of our head. And he had to confess them. Because we cannot even make a perfect confession of our sins. And Jesus had to confess our sins. 
and identify with our sins and all the feeling of shame in that. People are puzzled by those messianic psalms where the suffering one confesses sin. We must never be puzzled by them. O oh God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Psalm 69, clearly messianic, the psalm of the suffering one. And yet he makes this confession. He sung these psalms. He prayed these psalms. He entered into our condition. Even Psalm 51. He prayed it. He, he entered into our condition. And he knows the shame of sin. Not by personal experience. And the engagement of the sins. But in his union with those who did engage in them. And this was the deepest part of the agony of the Son of Man. As he's made sin for us. Some theologians want to water that all down and explain that all away and come up with some other thing. But I just like to say what Paul said, he was made sin for us. Can't explain it, can't understand it. But there's a depth there that is beyond the theological mind. Then there was the shame of nakedness. They parted his garments among them. They sat down watched him there. We like to think an undergarment was left. It was not. They're very distinctly all counted out and they were all parted. But I need say no more. We pull a veil over that. The awful shame. And then there was the shame of being reckoned a transgressor, a lawbreaker. All they that passed by thought, there's a transgressor, there's a sinner, there's the one worthy of death, there's the one who must have done horrible things, there's the liar, there's the hypocrite, there's the blasphemer, there's the glutton, there's the drunkard, there's the one who hangs about with the publicans and the sinners. And he's identified. Thus, there's the thief, there's the murderer. You know, we can know ourselves to be innocent of these things, but be wrongly accused. And it matters not that the accusation is false. The shame is present. It's not easy shaken away. The conscience is clear. That is true. But mud sticks. And when men cast these things upon Christ and others hear it and others see it and others believe it, that's what they see sticking. And Christ knows they see the mud that has been cast upon him by others. And that mud brings a sense of shame. He despised it. He abhorred it. And he didn't leave the cross and the agony of it because of it. And his love for us. And he says, Don't be ashamed of me. Who bore the shame for you? Well, why should we leave the Christian life with feelings of shame and embarrassment? Let's endure these things as Christ endured them. And then the last thing is the abuse, the contradiction of sinners against himself. There was the physical abuse, of course. 
especially I think in mind here is the verbal abuse, the strife of words. That's how most abuse takes place nowadays. Words, words. A dig here, a dig there. You know, just abuse, contradiction, the strife of words, the difficulty that people give to you, the insinuations, the accusations, the complaints, the diggings, the, the opposition, all in these verbal, verbal forms. The Jesus had this to bear. He, he had to face it all the time. Always difficult people. Always chief priests. Always scribes and Pharisees. Always the rulers. And the strife of words. You remember how they called him Beelzebub? Throughout his own public ministry. And other things. But on the cross it was particularly cruel. You know we, we are struck when we read the gospel accounts. Of Christ's crucifixion. When we discover that. He wasn't allowed even quietness. Quietness in his death. He wasn't allowed that. The awful verbal abuse. I am a worm he says. A reproach of men. Despised of the people. All they that see me. They laugh me to scorn. This is an outward noisy laugh. They laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head. They make all these physical signs. All these symbols. Always to annoy him before his eyes. And then they talk. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. If he have him. And all these things. He couldn't die in quietness. He couldn't die just in the pain and the shame. But there had to be this, this abuse. Abuse is awful. The awful verbal abuse. You know in public execution. Uh, men have at least the decency. Of being quiet and respectful when even the most awful criminals are put to death. Proper justice demands that. That at least the executed can be allowed to die in quietness. But Christ suffered more brutal. It's no justice here. From beginning to end it's all a travesty of justice. Human abuse. Let us thus adore him. Who suffered thus in our stead. Let us adore him for his cross. For enduring the cross. He embraced the cross. Let us embrace him to ourselves. He who had the impalement. The cross to himself. And nothing but a cross. Let us impale him upon ourselves. Impale him to our bosoms. Impale him to our hearts. Let us embrace him who embraced the cross. Let us love him who loved us. Let us nail him to our hearts. Let us nail him to our affections. Let us with the cords of love, kindness, join him to our hearts. Let us love him who loved us. Let us crown him with the crown of glory who was crowned with the thorns. And for the shame that he bore, let us honor him. Let us exalt him. Let us enthrone him. Let us say good things of him.
Let us say, this is our Lord. This is our friend. This is our God and Savior. This is our Redeemer who died for us. The shame he has is the shame of our sins. And we honor him. We exalt him. We extol him. We confess him. We talk of him. We talk of the beauty that we see and not the shame that the world sees. We talk of the holiness. We talk of the loveliness that he bears in his inner man who is disfigured and broken in his outer man. We talk of him and we honour him. And the mud that was slung upon him we remove and we beautify him and we say he is altogether lovely and none compares unto his beauty and it is our ambition, our longing that we would even be like him as lovely as he is the altogether lovely one and we cover him with words of extolling and we Proclaim his virtue, his lowliness, his love. We dress him who they undressed. We dress him with garments of praise. We dress him with songs of honour. And for the abuse, we let him hear other things in his house. We let him hear you are the Lord's anointed. You are the Lord's deliverer. You are the saviour of the world. You are the one who died in our stead. You are our Lord and Redeemer. And we tell the world he takes our place. He bears our sins. He carries our sorrows. And we come to his table. And we thank him. And we sit down with him. And we say, Lord Jesus, we, we love you. We love you. And we especially love you. That you for us endured the cross. And despised the horrible shame. And endured also that awful abyss for us it was hell because that's what hell is it's pain it's shame it's abuse of other fallen men and devils and demons it's hell it's abuse he delivered us from that Remember him. 